everybody and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of Final Community Podcast. What you're about to hear is a discussion between Andreas Kohl and myself. Andreas works in the vinyl industry for decades. He knows our favorite hobby in and out. He's a record pressing manager, he worked for Optimal, so he has quite a reputation in the vinyl business. So stay tuned when we discuss colored vinyl, paper sleeve versus polyline sleeves, hot stampers, and everything else. All right. Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Hi. I'm here with Andreas, who was kindly enough to spare some of his precious time to answer uh, some of the while he's doing some funny noises. <laughs> and um, Andreas, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, being here, uh, answering all the questions. And I want to make sure, because I got so many questions in because of quality issues. I mean, yeah. eight, uh, eight of 10 questions were about quality issues. So okay. uh, just, it's not your fault and everybody's watching. He's not responsible for it, but he tries to explain why this is happening. Yeah. So don't be yeah. mad at him. <laughs> 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 so thanks, Andreas, and may you introduce yourself a little bit so we know what you're doing, why you are here. Um, yeah, I'm uh, working for uh, what we call a, a broker and a, manufact a manufacturing broker. I'm usually using the analogy or the, the comparison um, once someone wants to buy uh, a car you wouldn't go to a car manufacturer in detroit and stand up their facility gates and say like i want this ford in green you would go to a car dealer and you would discuss with your car dealer what exactly you want what kind of ac you want what kind of color you want what kind of seat covering and stuff and so the car dealer just combines it and then sends the order off to the manufacturer and a couple of weeks later you can pick up your car and this is exactly what a broker does of course there's direct Direct setups with like very big labels uh, working directly with pressing plants, but um, a vast majority in the independent business is nowadays handled via brokers. Uh, you have uh, mid-size or small labels who work with brokers who pick up uh, a pressing plant. And they have usually brokers have a certain setup of a certain amount of pressing plants that they work with on a regular base. They have capacity reserved. They have standard pricings, which is usually better than a direct pricing because they can combine efforts and they do a lot of stuff that um, a manufacturing plant uh, wouldn't be able to provide like full-on service, test pressing, mastering facilities. And sometimes even when you want to create like a special box set or a special packaging, they work with external printers and then supply uh, the prints in the pressing plant or they get the records from the pressing plant sent to a fulfillment agency who then can combines all the different parts. So basically what, what we do, uh, the company that I work for called Key Production is based in the UK. We uh, do all this. We uh, work in pr 
project development, we create uh, special packagings, we uh, create a product together with the client, uh, which is usually a label, or sometimes it's even artists and managements. And once we have a created, once we have created a project, then we send it off to a pressing plant and order it there. Um, this is what I'm currently doing. Before that, I've been working for almost 10 years at a pressing plant uh, in Germany, mainly in sales and quality assurance. Um, yeah, and before that, and or even still to this day, I run my own label called Exile on Mainstream, which is more like a free time effort. It's not really created to to make a big income it's more the fun side of it and i used to i used to run a label management agency as well with bookings tour bookings for artists and promotion and uh publishing that kind of stuff before i joined the pressing plant optimal media that i worked for for 10 years the label is still existing and i still do uh, some writings i work as a freelance journalist as well for uh, several music magazines. Um, just how my time allows is it, more like a fun part than it is an actual business. <laughs> That's you what it is. You have free time with all of this. I mean, vinyl broker, broker sounded like you are kind of responsible for everything. You know, you have to make sure the printer delivers on time, that the printings are what the client expected to, that the paper is there you know, everything. So this sounds like very stressful. And then in the in the meantime to say, okay, I need a little hobby and have my own label and all of that. That sounds, wow, respect. Well, uh, this, this is how our lives are set up. I mean, yours as well. And everyone watching this probably as well, you got a hobby. Some people play golf, some people uh, just build cars or go scuba diving. And I'm, I just run the label, simple as that. <laughs> Wow. What was your, your biggest project as a vinyl broker? Um, I, I only started working for this company, Key Production, last year in November. Um, so, um, and I'm not fully directly involved in, um, in, in, in the daily business so much. Of course, I work with clients as well, and I work with pressing plants as well. Um, but it's like inside the company, you have like, what we call accountants, people who work straight with clients and then send it off to a pressing plant. This is what I'm doing as well, but not to a full extent. I'm a bit more like um, into the administrational side of things. I keep contact with different suppliers, with different manufacturing plants, visit them occasionally and work on projects involving sustainability, uh, material shortage and technical expertise. So uh, with me working for for this broker naming a big a big project nowadays is a bit uh, I, I can't really tell because i haven't been doing it so long but in my let's say career in the past couple of years there were projects that i've been working on um in in this business that are quite big and um also involved a lot of efforts and it's fair to say like the biggest that i worked on was the my bloody valentine reissues that came out last year or two years ago um all their classic albums where i worked pretty uh close with the artist himself um to create a, a, a product or to create a release that stands out quality wise 
um, sound wise and packaging wise. Yeah, that would probably like when I when I look at the span of time, how much time and effort we invested in this it ran over four years. That was probably the biggest thing I worked on. Yeah. Wow. Oh, okay. So uh, let's get into the questions I got. And um, one of those is you're spending nowadays a huge amount of records. Like, for example, you pay now, I don't know, 30, 40 euro for a record. You open this record up and the first thing, thing you're greeted with is this. And um, you open it up and you say, all right, how do I get rid of this? I'm getting paper scarves, uh, paper burns, all those kind of things. So I'm questioning myself like many other people. When I spend so much money on, on a product, why is it not possible to deliver this product at least in a, in a poorly lined inner sleeve? Um, as a fan, as a vinyl collector, and even as a representative from the manufacturing industry, I would 100% agree with you. If it was for me, there wouldn't be any record on the market not being packed in a polylined inner sleeve. It is by far the best material, it's by far the best packaging for several reasons that we can discuss uh, as well later if there is a question regarding this. But um, we have to understand um, that a manufacturer is just basically manufacturing um, on the on behalf of a client on behalf of an artist on behalf of a label and they do decide how they want their records packed it is not a decision that is failed in the pressing plant what we do constantly from uh, the manufacturing side is enforcing our clients to pack records in polyline sleeves but we can't we can't bind it bind them to to it we can we can just recommend but if they say i'd rather want a standard inner sleeve because it is cheaper or i want a printed inner sleeve then of course we manufacture it if i go back to the uh, to the comparison that i did before uh with the car dealer uh, everyone would agree that white leather on the seats in a car um or in a whatever in a uh, maybe in a jeep that goes through the woods is not a good idea but there are still people wanting it and that thing gets dirty immediately and the car manufacturer can't be held responsible for what the client wishes and it is basically the same here but other than that i fully agree polylined inners all the way when it was for me what's the price difference between this to this So we were a little lost in connection, Andreas, but I still see. Oh, now I'm back. Yeah, no, you, you just. Okay, I repeat <laughs> the question. What's the price difference between the paper sleeve to the polyline sleeve? About how much money do we speak? Um, it is, it is, it, it really depends. Um, it depends on where you order the record. Um, we say like there is, there is a vast majority of pressing plants on the planet. They all have different price structures. There is pressing plants who do all these sleeves in-house. They can manufacture it themselves. Then there is other pressing plants who need to buy them in. And if you got a small pressing plant, you would probably order like 10,000 of these sleeves a month. If you're a big pressing plant, you use 10,000 in the first two hours of a business day, and that reflects in the price. Um, but I would say 
Um, just a very rough guideline. Um, a, a standard inner sleeve is about, I would say, between 10 and, and 15 cents, sometimes more, sometimes less, while poly line would be up to 25, sometimes even 30 cents. So euro cents, that would be just just an average. Don't nail me down to it. There might be people looking here, run pressing plans, go like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pay so much more for these. Um, but the difference would be roughly between 15 or 20 cents each. Yes. So to save around 10, 15 cents per per record is um, for for the companies who are bringing this record out the decision to make. Okay, let's let's just use the paper ones. Yeah, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't always say that. There is um, there is different reasons for um using for using standard inner sleeves and non-polyline ones um some of the clients some of the labels don't even know uh the difference they don't know that there is a quality issue i would even assume that there is a vast majority of fans out there who don't care of course people looking uh, or watching this uh, in, in, in this live stream um they know their shit, but i know it from so many people that they never spent a single thought on this and then something else um is a, a lot of a lot of people really like printed inner sleeves i have the discussion with the clients all the time and, and i can even see magazines mentioning in their reviews especially if there is a printed inner sleeve which is even worse than a standard white inner sleeve mm -hmm. if you ask me um, okay. So it's 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 not always a question of money, but if you are a small independent label and you press like 300 or 500 units, um, of which you don't even know if you're going to sell half of them under the current uh, economical situation, this difference is making a difference um, in, in the total price. I do understand this with small independent labels, but I don't get it with major labels or like the latest Rolling Stones uh, box set. Uh, I think as far as I know, they were all in, in, in paper sleeves. I mean, we're, we're talking about a box set which is sure to be selling out. So, and yeah. then saving 10 to 15 cents, uh, you know, even if there are 12 records or 11 in it, that's, but um, yeah. So we got a question from Victor. He's asking about single-use plastic band. Victor, are you talking about this these kind of Japanese paper sleeves or... Could you please specify what you mean by single-use plastic band? So we can ask Andreas right away. Also, okay, so it's um, what I'm getting out of it. If you're a small label, uh, you're trying, of course, to save money because during the economic reason you, you or the band is absolutely unknown or it's a first release or something that you have to save money on, on the bigger label. Sometimes they, they don't know. Uh, about this uh, this difference, or they want a printed uh, inner sleeve. Otherwise, I'm taking audits to save money. Yeah. Nothing's yeah, that's what I would say. Um, there's there's other reasons. I mean, we could we could talk on this topic alone for a couple of hours. Um, it also depends on the audio material embedded in the record. Um, if it is like a high dynamic record um, that. Um, is let's say not polished or the stampers are not polished not dehorned properly then you see these marks these scuff marks uh, that appear easily on non-polyline inners when you take the record out which is audible. but if you would say like I'm, I'm i'm constructing examples here if you have like a highly compressed uh, record with a very low dynamic range um 
a standard inner sleeve is not affecting the playability and not even the quality of the record. Um, when it comes to something like anti-static um, issues, a polyline is better because that HDPE uh, plastic that is inside the polyline is uh, anti-static towards the record. But you could also like take the record out and ground it properly if you got a well-grounded turntable with a rubber plate on it um the issue would disappear immediately if you treat your records well in like pe sleeves or something dust won't be an issue um so it's not i i wouldn't i wouldn't say even even though i heavily rec recommend using polyline inner sleeves there is certain sounding records that don't ultimately require it mm. so for me it's it's i always tear them apart and it's not because of anti-static or anything like this. I, I clean the record, so I don't have the issue. For me, it's just not getting these tiny scratches. Um, I think I'm getting on the record when I put it out, no matter how I do it. Some people have certain tricks on it to get it out. For me, it never worked, so I have the problem. Mm. So we have a question from Small X. The vast majority of people who bought into the recent vinyl fed aren't in it for the same reasons people like us are. It's a plastic collectible, a gimmick. Might be true, X might be true because I've read an article uh, from the United States, I think, where 50% of the people who are buying records are not even having a record player. So, might be true. Yeah, that's what I constantly hear all the time as well. And I think there is, uh, there is a bit of a truth to it, but it is like with every other part in society that you can't see it black and white this is like when you are a vinyl lover uh and a vinyl collector there is like a scale like there is people that are super nerds who are into a quality in, into quality more than anything else there i know people that buy records because of the sound and not about the music embedded therein and then you have people who use the record as like conservation of, of a certain music i would say like i'm even myself i'm leaning towards the latter a little bit um i'm not, i wouldn't even call myself an active vinyl collector it's like every single record that i own is open and has been played at some time and for me it's just like it's 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 daily usage and i have no issue if there's some crackle on a record hey records crackle and i still enjoy listening to them but i fully understand that people like can feel like literally pain when a record is not sounding perfectly clean but it, as i say it's just like a scale you are somewhere on the scale um and you find yourself a spot there and um therefore it's true there might be people who are not opening the record and for them as it's a fashion object or it's a lifestyle object but even that it was like they're they're buying the records and they're helping artists to survive that's that's how i see it okay um the last time we talked you recommended me a record which was unforgettable a tribute to dina washington from a music on vinyl it took uh i think after we've we've talked i just recently got it because uh, after we've talked it was somehow sold out on on jpc so you quite had an influence on that talk um, we were on a podcast with Final End. Simo is also watching here tonight, so big shout out to him. And I got it. And yeah, I'm one of those unlucky people. Uh, I have now the third version of this record because the first, second ones were warped. And that was also okay. some questions getting in. Why are so many records uh, getting out warped? 
Um, yeah, we've been discussing this on the Vinyl Community podcast already, and I have been discussing it a, a lot of times in the recent weeks and months. Um, first of all, I got to say, there is the impression that there is a big number of warped records out there in the market I'm getting as well. It doesn't certainly mean that there is more than there was before whatever time frame you want to you want to pitch to it it's it's just it appears to be different nowadays than it was back in the day and um there is so many things that you need to take into consideration when you talk about this um the first thing what what you said is like why do so many warped records leave the manufacturers I can rightfully say, and this can also be proven, it's not more than it was before. And I would even go as far uh, as putting out the statement that 85 to maybe 90% of the records that leave a manufacturer aren't warped by the time they leave the manufacturer. Um, all the pressing plants I know have advanced quality controls, and it is a very rare thing that a warped record gets packed at a pressing plant boxed up and shipped out. So why are so many warp records out there? Um, first of all, we need to understand why do records warp? Um, and this is something that a lot of people don't know. Um, one of the main reasons for records warping are the labels um, applied on the records. There is still uh, an understanding out there that these are some kind of stickers that get stuck on the record when it's pressed, which is not the truth. The labels that are on A and B side are, are being pressed with the record. They're made from paper, and when the machine opens, there goes a label for a side E on the bottom, uh, A on the bottom, there goes a, a, a clot of vinyl on it, then there comes the B-side label, and then the machine closes. And um, labels are an integral and important part for record pressing um, because they are uh, helping um, if the vinyl compound floating correctly to the outside and they're helping the machine opening relatively stable and not a part of the record sticking on the stamper on one side, which would be the reason for a warped record inside a manufacturing plant. So um, since we have two different materials that are married together like PVC or plastic, it is just 80% PVC and 19% PVAC, polyvinyl acetate, and um, paper, um, you have, um, it, is, it is quite complicated and it is quite uh, complex to, to marry the two materials. First of all, these labels need to be absolutely dry, as dry as possible, because otherwise they would blister. We all probably know or have seen records before where you have a label that has some kind of like small blisters and you can peel it off and then there's a correct label underneath. This is usually, uh, the reason for that is usually labels being damp or containing moisture. That's why manufacturing uh, plants are drying the labels in big ovens for sometimes 24 hours under 100 degrees, so they're perfectly dry. Um, why is a label in need to be perfectly dry? Paper is just like wood, has a fiber direction. If you look at a sheet of paper, you see a direction of fiber going on. And the moisture contained in the material dictates how the how the paper is 
expanding. It ex is expanding more along the fiber lines than it is expanding against the fiber lines. Now, since the label is round, you can't apply it on a record perfectly meeting each other. This is like the fiber direction of the A side and B side label, label will always differ in different directions. So what happens now? You have a record that is perfectly pressed, it's perfectly flat, and then it comes uh, or it gets transported into changing or in changing conditions. Um, we all have learned probably in school that when you have a relatively warm air that can host a lot of humidity, a lot of moisture, and you have um, a device or a product that is colder on the inside that the moist condenses on this device. And this is exactly what happens in the label. Um, when I and this is where the heat comes in. A lot of people assume records do get warped when they are heated up, but that's just half of the truth. Heat plays in it, but it's not like that you heat a record up and then becomes warped because it would become flat again when it cools down, and it doesn't do that. So why is that? The record, let me start from, from a different angle. You, you take a record and you put it in a room that is relatively hot, um, the record, because of the high density material, doesn't heat up as fast as the air around it. it. So it stays colder. And the humidity contained in the air surrounding it is condensing in the label. Um, and the condensation um, provokes the, the label to expand in one direction on, a side, on the A side and in a different direction on the B side. And this is a tension that gets moved forward onto the record. The tension works with the vinyl and kind of like draws the record warped. This is how the majority of records do get warped. And now we're coming back to discussing the reason why it is such a big issue nowadays and it wasn't such a big issue in the past days. And there is a lot of different aspects to, to look into. First of all, if we compare records being sold nowadays with records being sold in the early 90s, uh, the way how they are manufactured and being transported and being sold is entirely different. Uh, in the early 90s or 70s and 80s, most of the pressing plants were owned by big major record labels who also had a warehouse. So what happens back then, a record gets pressed. When it's pressed, it goes in a pallet. The pallet was being moved over to a warehouse which was on the same site as the pressing plan. And then a record store would order a certain amount of record. They were loaded on, get loaded on a truck and transported directly to the record store. In the record store, records were not even shrink wrapped back in these days. Records go into the record store and then they're sitting on a shelf. A fan or punter, people like us, walk into the record store, wanted to buy a record, take the record out of the shelf. And I would say like the vast majority of people back in these days, I remember it, I was there, would take the record out of the sleeve, look at it, and sometimes even listen to it because there was a big amount of record players in these stores. We would listen to it, we like it, we put it back in the sleeve, go to the cash point, buy it, walk home with it. Um, this means like in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, everyone who wanted to buy a record had the theoretical chance to inspect it before he buys it. That is a reason why there is not that many warped records from this era out on the market because the, the records that were warped back then, they didn't even make it into the record collector's homes. They would just they stayed at the at the record store and got returned to the manufacturer and then scrapped. So nowadays, 
we have a completely different structure of selling records. First of all, records get manufactured, they get packed, they get shrink wrapped, boxed up, then proceed to a loading dock where they were, are being picked up by a truck. The truck transports it to the next hub. They get unloaded, stored overnight, go into the next hub. Then they cross borders. Then they go into the next distribution hub from there in a warehouse. And then they're sitting in the UK or in Belgium where the big distribution warehouses on this planet are in Europe. Um, from there, they not, not seldomly are being distributed to other warehouses. Then they end up in some Amazon warehouse or in the warehouse of a uh, of a mail order company. Then you would order the order, uh, order the record online. Then it gets loaded on a truck as well, transported to your home. You get it at home, and then you unpack it for the first time. So between the pressing plant and your own stereo equipment at home the record is crossing so many different conditions in humidity, in temperature, in warmth, even in the way how they're being treated and intermediately stored that you can't literally control every single step of the transport way. Plus what comes up to it, no one nowadays, people ordering online, if you go to a record store, still the same thing. No one nowadays sees a record before they buy it. And that gives us the impression of being more warped records out there. Also because we're all very active in social media and we're discussing these things. These things have never been discussed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, there was there was circles, record collectors, where people would talk to each other, hey, I got a warped record and I got a scratch record, and then it would disappear. The discussion was among peer groups, and that was it. Nowadays, someone gets a warped record, posts it on Discogs forum or somewhere else, and you have a record that comes out in probably 80,000 pressed records. And if you got 15 warped records being discussed on uh, Discogs, it automatically sounds like the super big issue, um, which it is. I mean, I mean, I don't try to defend it, but it's just like um, we need to be very uh, careful of who we hold responsible for this. Sometimes there is no one who could be held responsible and it comes down to what can be discussed all the time when we're discussing records we got a pro product that pretty much doesn't fit in our current society under so many aspects wow thanks for pointing that out but um wouldn't it be for record stores more easy to get rid of the shrink wrap so everybody can inspect the record they're buying at least for the record stores um, this is this is something that I, from a from a collector's perspective, I would totally agree. But there is other reasons why it's not not a good idea to do this. Um, first of all, quality issues. Um, the best way to protect a record from humidity is to shrink wrap it, which uh, should be logical and understandable to everyone. The other thing is like the um, the shrink wrapping adds some kind of tension to the sleeve that works uh, against the wish and will of the record to become warped under different uh, conditions. So that is one aspect. The other aspect is uh, distribution business. Um, distributors nowadays and labels require records to be shrink wrapped um, by demand of us fans as well. I mean, just go on Discogs and see how much more money you can get when you get when you sell a shrink wrap record. Um, as long as we fans don't force uh, the record companies to change their behavior in that and 
this probably would even result uh, in, a, in a in a counteraction of the um, of, of the quality issue that I just described. Nothing's going to change. Um, so it is um, it is not perfect, but it's the the taking off the shrink wrapping would be something that I would vote against it. And this is something, if you go into a record store and you tell the record store owner, I want to inspect the record, can I open the shrink wrapping? I can fully understand why a shop owner doesn't want to do it because he can't return that record mm -hmm. in the end. I'm no more buying uh, a sealed record. You know, I'm, I'm especially in, in collecting 70s records. And um, I had the opportunity to get some sealed records. They were all warped mm. because they were for 40 plus years in that shrink. And they, you know, that was so I'm, yeah. I'm done with that. But thanks so much for pointing that out. So the next question was about the myth of colored vinyl nowadays. Does colored vinyl sound not as good as black vinyl, which is in its way also colored, I think? And um, uh, also, I've heard that gold vinyl is very problematic, so you shouldn't buy gold vinyl at all. So uh, maybe you could tell us something about the colored vinyl issue. Is it true? Is it not true? What do we need to take care of? Um, well, it's just like, like with everything in the record business or in the record manufacturing business, uh, we're talking analog. We're talking things that are not black and white, that are not digital, that are not zero and one, so you can separate it. And that's the same with colored vinyl. Um, there, You can't generalize it and say, like, this sounds worse or better than this. Um, as much as you can't tell us, like, who, who, who is the better musician or who do I like more, Bob Dylan or uh, Chris Christopherson? You, this is, it is a matter of taste. And um, the same goes with colored vinyl. Um, what, you, what can be said is that the risk for pressing imperfections on colored vinyl is increased for several reasons. Um, there's also a few aspects. I'm going to name a few, but there's more to it. But the majority I'm going to uh, explain here. Um, the compound that is being used for manufacturing records is a mixture of twenty of eighty percent PVC, nineteen uh, percent PVAC polyvinyl acetate, and then one percent of like colors and stabilizers and whatever you put in there. Um, this material. Um, by default, is kind of like milky transparent. So you would assume if you want to go to uh, want to find the cleanest compound, it would be uncolored compound. Um, so why are records being colored at all? Um, one of the reasons was when PVC got, got established and uh, got invented in the late 30s of the last century, but became the leading compound in the, uh, in the 50s, 60s of the last century, um, it was paying tribute to the old Shellac records, who were actually colored with, um, with carbon. Um, um, and a record just was considered to be black, so they kept uh, or they they stayed with the with the color. But uh, black has another advantage when it comes to quality controls. Um, uh, or let me let me explain first about the colors themselves. So there is pigments that are being mixed with the compound and that color the records. Um, the black records are are usually colored also by standard pigments, but the black records are the only are the only color that using graphite in the in the in the pigments, 
and people of us riding bicycles or riding motorcycles or whatever know this when you sometimes you have a screw that just doesn't want to come loose so what you do you take like a, a pen a, a pencil and and just rub it on the on the um on the screw and then all of a sudden it comes loose because the graphite uh, embedded therein uh, greases uh, this, uh, this screw. And this is exactly what uh, happens in black vinyl as well. There's like a tiny little bit of graphite in the, in the color and that helps greasing the needle. That's why the surface noise on a black record is usually lower than on a colored record. Um, but, and here comes the but, it's like everywhere in vinyl manufacturing you have a but. The surface noise of the record that you can't avoid will only shine through if you have a high dynamic record with a lot of quiet parts. If you have like overcompressed metal core record, it doesn't even matter if there is surface noise or not because it's just fully embedded in the sound of the record. And if you take such a record, you wouldn't spot a difference between black, red, transparent, whatever. But if you have a record that is very high dynamic, let's say like a piano concert or something that has very quiet parts and very dynamic parts where everything explodes and then goes back to silence, then the surface noise kind of shines through on these records. Um, if you would ask me for some kind of ranking, um, it can be said that all transparent uh, colors for vinyl are not that much prone to pressing imperfections or let's say they're easier to press uh they're floating differently when the when the machine closes and the the risk for pressing imperfections on transparent vinyls is lower but as i said here comes a but again um while this is technically true the quality checks for transparent records being it like transparent crystal clear or red transparent or blue transparent are a serious pain in the ass if not even fully impossible when it comes to a complete crystal clear record here's why there is some standard pressing imperfections that some of you guys would know some call them non-fills where the material is not really like uh filling the grooves properly then uh, there's something that we call stitching that a few people of you might know like it looks like someone did sue the record that happens when the machine opens and the record gets like kind of like a drill and and uh, runs against the stamper again and all these pressing imperfections they allow only for a visual check there is no technical way to check this comparing it to a cd for instance a cd gets pressed goes into a machine a laser le reads it out and says like this is fine can go out no it's broken this goes in the bin this is absolutely impossible and it will never be possible on vinyl record manufacturing quality check checks are always subjective we're talking about people taking the records in their hand looking at them now if you got a pressing imperfection like non-fill or stitching it is absolutely invisible on a transparent record. You just don't see it. So when it happens, it can't be filtered out. It can't be seen. Um, unless you would take like whatever 20,000 clear records and listen to each one of them. And no one has the capacity to do this. And if we would do this in the pressing plants, then you would pay whatever 80 euros for a record or even more. So um, you always have pros and cons on both sides. Transparent records are the pressing quality is slightly better than opaque colors, but opaque colors are easier for spotting imperfections. Uh, a difference is 
white records, silver records, and gold records, all metallic records, because to uh, uh, reach the metallic glands of a record, you actually need to embed metallic particles. And they are slightly microscopical bigger than the normal pigments used in coloring vinyls, which means that the groove bottom uh, in, the, in the record is not as smooth as with a standard color and that means you have like little bumps and tiny little like scratches on the on the groove bottom of the record and this is what is audible as surface noise um this is what your cartridge reach uh, reads out depending on how good of a quality what kind of needle you're using if you're using an elliptical needle or a spherical needle what kind of cartridge you have how physically correct and exact it is able to reach out you hear that surface noise more prominent or you don't Another thing with um, with metallic records is that during pressing, the metallic particles also can like wander up to the surface. Same with um, white vinyl, by the way, it also contains metallic particles, which is zinc um, to whiten the records. So if you ask me for some kind of ranking, transparent colors, when it comes to colors vinyl, transparent colors, um, very good quality or good pressing quality um quality checks problematic and the more opaque you become and the more silver you become the more the quality decreases and if you're a true vinyl lover get a black record that's my recommendation i only do black records on my label this is like i'm not fond of the whole coloring stuff but on the other hand let me add this there is certain colored records, especially when you have like super weird mixtured colors. It's a different angle of way from where you can approach a record. A record also can become a piece of art because of its color. Um, and that means there might be people out there not paying that much attention to the content, to the musical content and the quality, the listening quality, and rather spend their money on something that contains music, but is also a piece of art with a, special packaging and maybe a special uh, color mixture and this is something that we got to accept of course of course but um are you familiar with the uhqrs uh from analog productions or super vinyl um one of these special vinyl mixes from certain companies um i'm not actually i have to say i'm not familiar with it i um just recently um decided that i want to get into this because mm. um uh, there is obviously companies out there marketing their records as super vinyl what i think can't be the truth because super vinyl was an invention from gvc uh in the 1980s and it came to the market for one simple reason that has to do with uh, quadraphonic recording i don't know who of you is familiar with that um, quadraphonic recordings and quadraphonic pressings require a steering signal in the 30 kilohertz range that needs to be cut in the record and embedded somewhere. Mm -hmm. And once you press such records on standard vinyl, um, this signal in the 30 kilohertz range degrades after several plays. So you press a record that has the steering signal that your uh, amplifier who can read out a quadraphonic signal is able to reproduce um but it can't be read out read out anymore after like 30 40 plays that's why gvc came on the market with a material which is much harder than actual vinyl and they called it super vinyl and that was basically invented for uh for for quadraphonic 
um, recordings and then Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab um, with their especially, as we call them, hot and dynamic masterings. Um, got wind of this material and started pressing their records on this material, what kind of created uh, the bottom for uh, the reputation of uh, Japanese pressings, um, first of all, and also uh, the, the MoFi legacy itself. It is, I wouldn't go as far because I have little to, or not enough knowledge about the whole process, but I think a lot of these records on Super Vinyl are so perfectly sounding because of the mastering and not that much because of the pressing. They're used different cycle times as far as I know. But here comes the thing. This material got suspended in the mid 80s um, when GVC crossed their pressing, uh, closed their pressing facilities. And the recipe for this material has been locked in since then. And as far as I know, no one out there knows the correct recipe. There have been attempts to find out what it actually is. Um, and um, if you research a little bit, you will find out that the manufacturing of this compound plus the manufacturing of the records under uh, certain circumstances is so highly toxic that you wouldn't get a permit to do it nowadays. That's why I was a bit surprised reading that there is companies out there um, selling their records uh, as super vinyl and I can only assume that the term super vinyl is probably not protected so you can come up with a different material and also call it super vinyl or they're using it wrongly they're just basically stealing a trademark I can't really imagine that it is real super vinyl out there but if there is anyone out there proving me wrong you're welcome well Thanks so much. Um, I really, uh, if you if you got in deeper into that topic, I really want to talk about you with the UHQRs and the super vinyls, all these kind of products which uh, which are coming up. So uh, small X is saying super vinyl is a reference to QX vinyl formulas, aka virgin vinyl. Um, I happen to disagree. Uh, virgin vinyl is a, is a different term. Virgin vinyl is uh, or records pressed from virgin vinyl are records being pressed from 100% fresh granulate uh, or compound coming from a certain supplier. Um, it has be, been the standard in the industry in the last couple of years. There is still pressing plants out there who only press on virgin vinyl. Then there is a few pressing plants who um, topping their virgin vinyl up with like five to 10% recycled vinyl, which is basically records that they recycle in-house. Um, they uh, take records that have been sorted out in quality control or the edge cutting when the record comes out of the press, the edge gets cut off. It gets grinded and granulated and mixed into the compound. Um, this is something that each and every supplier, each and every pressing plant approaches differently. There's pressing plants out there who don't even have a regrinding facility so they can use only virgin vinyl. Then there is a few pressing plants who top this up by a certain amount. There is even pressing plants where you can tell them, look, um, I'm, I want to have a record that is um, spe specifically sustainable. So I want like 30 or 40% regrind mixed in. And then there is pressing plants who also offer 100% recycled vinyl. But the term virgin vinyl just refers to fresh granulate being used in the vinyl pressing because it floats the best in the machine. I've heard that a McCartney album, I don't know, McCartney 3 or someone uh, did uh, recycle uh, records from uh, the McCartney 1 or McCartney 2 
to create the, the vinyl version of McCartney 3, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. So um, is there an issue using recycled vinyl? I've heard that it's not so quiet as virgin vinyl, that there are problems with it. Um, also, again, we're in analog manufacturing. We have uh, manufac different manufacturers with different setups. There, you can't generalize it. It really depends on how much research went into using this vinyl. We can't even go as far and say that records are being pressed the same way at different plants. Um, the, even with like standard virgin vinyl compound, even if you take a compound coming from the same supplier, from the same manufacturer of the granulate itself, and it goes to three different pressing plants, you have three different setups. You got different temperatures, different pressures. You got um, people in the pressing plant, so-called operators that maintain the machine who find the best way um, of de depending on their steam pressure that they have, of their heating, even the humidity in the room plays a role. A pressing plant that is operating by a seaside would have a different pressing setup than one that is situated in the mountains. In so it sounds like full-on conspiracy kind of thing, but it is the fact. And that's the same with regrinded vinyl. Um, it is fair to say um, that once you regrind vinyl and use recycled vinyl, the quality in comparison uh, to, um, to fresh or virgin vinyl uh, is inferior, but do you notice it? No, most of the times not. Um, the plant I worked for uh, 10 years, we were the first one that came out with records being pressed on 100% uh, recycled vinyl. It was an effort uh, connected to a lot of things um, being more sustainable, carbon offsetting, um, all these kinds of stuff, using green energy, green gas. Um, and we also, um, did run tests for several times until we got it right. And what came out of it is something that is on par with um, virgin vinyl, but not really there. But you would only spot the difference if you would have a record being pressed in the same setup with the same music, the same mastering, the same stamper on the same machine. Um, and yeah, basically the same setup on virgin vinyl and on recycled vinyl. And if you would compare these two otherwise fully identical record, you would hear a difference. This, this accounts for the company that I work for, but I would go as far and say like there might be companies out there or pressing plants out there who don't invest so, so much effort in research and getting it right, where you could spot a difference easier. Um, with with recycled vinyl one thing though that is re really important if someone is uh watching this this stream and goes like why don't we recycle all the records that are out there in flea markets and stuff um the compound that is being used nowadays differs a lot from compound that has been used in the 70s and 80s it doesn't mean that is the quality is worse or inferior to what has been used before but uh, especially uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, vinyl contained ingredients that are not allowed anymore that um, are proven to be cancer inducing like especially heavy metals cadmium and lead um, records made from these materials are not allowed to be pressed anymore. These materials are not allowed to be imported into Europe and worked with over here. And that's why there is uh, no permit to regrind older vinyls to press new records out of it because the 
basically that material has no permission to be used plus uh, the material as it is nowadays is specific to a machine set up at a certain plant and even if you take a record in that was manufactured on a different plant the mixture of the compound might be different and not work with what is being used there so once we're talking recycled vinyl and recycled records they in not the majority but in 100 percent of all cases are only made from in-house recycled vinyl edge cuts off uh, cut off and um records that are being thrown away because they were not good or they have been sorted out in in, in quality uh, checks we had the questions all the time hey can i i have like 500 records can i bring them into your plant and can you make new records with it this is not working that makes perfect sense thank you um during a couple of months ago there was a topic going uh, through the vinyl community and this was the topic hot stampers um so you're smiling um the the, the thing is um there's a person on the internet who sells records to a very high price because He's saying that they are from, as far as I understood, a very early stamper. So the quality of the record with this certain metrics number or whatever it is, is better than uh, another metrics number and selling it for very high prices. What is your opinion about the hot stamper topic? Um, I have been checking this website and I've been even talking to the guy. I did an interview with him a while ago and what turned out is that he is using the hot stamper topic um, but is not actually referring to stampers itself. So it is more like kind of like a, a collective term to find out the best sounding record. And when you come from this approach, he is in a physical way and also in a probably in a listening way he is he is perfectly right like if you have a pressing of a record from different eras with different masterings with different cuts there is of course difference differences uh, that record that we've been talking about earlier the uh, Aretha Franklin record that has been pressed i don't know how many times like 15 20 times in the in the past years in different pressing plans based on different cuts based on different masterings sometimes the mastering is a fully analog tape sometimes it's transferred in into digital and then um worked on it um so there is always um if you got different pressings you have different sounds um the question is how do you value the sound and this is when the personal taste comes in and this is what he fully admits on his website and i found this quite impressive he says like i'm gonna i have a team and i listen to whatever uh 50 to 80 to 100 records uh, of different pressings and then i decide which one sounds the best but it doesn't certainly mean that everyone else agrees and he, there's even people in his team not agreeing um why is that is this not not even there, you can't even objectively separate the different sounds because it depends on where you play it what's your setup like what is your amplifier like how is your um how is your room set up we all know this people in the vinyl industry or being vinyl collectors know that whatever uh, our setup is everything interferes so it's like even if i wear shoes with rubber soles or have or go barefoot there is a difference which most of the people wouldn't hear i don't hear them myself but if i would me measure this physically i would see a difference um 
static and um, uh, and the vibe in the room. So that's what he does. And um, sometimes he finds something that sounds extraordinarily good, and then he sells it for a high price, and then there's people buying it. And if they agree and they're happy with their spending, it's a good business model. I have to I have to admit that um, there is nothing to criticize about it, um, even though it, it is it appears to be a, a bit voodooish. But coming back to the initial question, um, what can be said is the term stamper and then connecting it to an engraving of a record is already the wrong approach. The engraving on a rep record doesn't give you any indication what stamper has been used. It gives you an indication what cut has been used, which cut, when has the record been cut then the, the cut, which is usually a lacquer or a DMM, gets electroplated and then stampers are being created. And sometimes there is like several hundred stampers being created from the same mother, um, from the same metalwork as we call it. And you wouldn't see which of these 100 stampers or 50 stampers or whatever has been used in the pressing. There's no way to indicate that. Uh, I know all the discussions, uh, conspiracies out there, what you can read and the engraving and what kind of spectrums each pressing plan has, but I can assure you uh, the number in the engraving gives an indication when uh, a record has been cut. Sometimes you can read out where it has been cut. Uh, sometimes you can read out where uh, the, the electroplating has happened, but it doesn't even give you an indication where it has been pressed. It, happened, it happens a lot of times that there is a record being cut and then there is a mother created and then the record gets pressed in one plant and uh, a couple of years later, this one plant doesn't have any capacity anymore. So the client asks, hey, can I get my metal work and sends it to a different plant and it gets pressed somewhere else, but it still has the same engraving. It doesn't even give you an indication where the record has been pressed. It gives you an indication who sometimes did cut it and when it was cut and that is all and that's why you can't you can't read out from an engraving which what what a hot stamper is this is just virtually impossible i do get it if i have um a, a, i don't know a record like the aretha franklin from uh, 1964 uh, compared to this one i'm pretty sure that this one sounds so the the music on vinyl release from i think last year sounds way better than the original one i do understand that this is the person is considering this as the hot stamper version if you want to call it that way but mm. what i don't get is if you if i buy an aretha franklin original of this run from 1964 is there a difference if i buy a monarch pressing or sterling pressing because this is i think as this was the way i understood it that he said well the sterling pressing is better than the monarch pressing because they used a hot stamper uh, before that. So that's how I understood it. And that, um, I yeah, the, uh, he, I think uh, he, he softened his approach a little bit because he received a bit of criticism. Um, I yeah. know some discussions with between him and Michael Framer from Analog Planet, who went pretty heavy on him at, at some point. And then he had to admit that there is a few things that he was creating or constructing uh, in making his hot, hot stampers, uh, the hot shit that he can't, he can't virtually prove. So um, he, he might have said that, but this is also, it's like sometimes um, 
you can you can nail down it to a certain pressing. There is records where we know that it has been pressed only in one year and only in one plant. What I was saying earlier that mother stampers are being shipped to other plants. This is not this is not a regular thing. It happens from time to time. And it was I was just using this analogy to tell you that you by the by the engraving you can't prove where it comes from. But we all know that there is records that have been pressed at a certain in a certain era at a certain moment. Um, and what you say about the new pressing sounds far better than the original pressing. I absolutely agree, but then you might have some other purists coming around saying like, yeah, but the original one is the original. This is, this is how they wanted it to sound back then. Um, I had the discussion when we did the uh, the, the the vinyl community talk, um, where I heavily recommended getting the recent repressings of the Led Zeppelin albums that have been remastered by Jimmy Page because I consider them the f so unbelievably beautifully sounding. But I have friends and people telling me, but it's not the original. This is not how they wanted it to sound when it came out. It wasn't paying. It's it's not paying tribute to the era when it was recorded. It was reworked with nowadays technology. And this is where discussion ends. It's like I can't even can't even get in a fight with such people because I say, yeah, you're right, I'm right. It's it's a matter of taste. That's what it is. Uh, Slamjack and Louis, I marked your questions uh, for later on. It won't be lost. I have seen that you're asked about it. We uh, I mark them and I will ask Andreas once we are done with the other questions. But uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> so pricing, big issue. Um, a price where in the pandemic skyrocketing, you could hardly, when there was something um, offered by craft recordings, or you had to be uh, uh, open up three different browsers on five different um, uh, PCs to make sure that you get one of those records and the pricing was skyrocketing. Can we expect to go the pricing? Does the pricing goes down or do we need to expect to pay even more? Oh my God! Where's my crystal ball? <laughs> um, if you asked me that question a couple of weeks ago, um, I would have said uh, there is uh, prices are still increasing. The signs at the moment, and please don't hold me to it, but the signs at the moment tell me that we probably have reached a peak, or it is we're right before reaching the peak. Of course, I can't predict what's going to happen in the future. We all know where these price increases are coming from. It's just like a, a massive disruption in the supply chain for raw material uh, induced and caused by the pandemic, and then it got topped up by the war in Ukraine and the behavior of uh, of the Russian economy forced by the Russian government. We have absolutely no clue at the moment how this will develop, and we can't predict it. Um, but what we see is, and uh, that has been discussed widely in the media, energy prices are already going down, not massively, but they're kind of like on a plateau and they're going down a little bit. An energy price increase had a big part in uh, the vinyl price increases in manufacturing. Um, we're approaching spring soon, so there probably will people, especially in Europe, will need that much more gas and oil to to heat their homes, which uh, will lead to a greater availability of energy. Most of the governments, the European governments, are have, uh, investing some heavily, some not, into renewable energies that will probably help stabilizing energy prices. The disruption in the supply chain of um, of raw material seems to come to an end. Um, 
because uh, especially harbors in China or in the Far East um, are open again. Uh, at the moment, as far as I know, no defect boat is blocking the Suez Canal. That was a big issue for us back then. Um, another reason for the price increase was the, was the nickel crisis. Some of you guys might have read about it, which is, wasn't even induced by the material being rare, but just some Chinese tycoon speculating on a price increase and uh, shortening nickel, what didn't work out for him. And all of a sudden, the prices for nickel, which we use in, 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 in electroplating and galvanics, skyrocketed to the max within within like five days in march last year we had the nickel price went up from thirteen thousand euros a ton to um to 140 which was just incredible to see and then the global nickel trade was closed for two three weeks before it opened up with limitations and the pressing plants using so little amounts of nickel that they don't store it so they didn't have any reserve and they are bound to the world market prices what led to uh, electroplating all of a sudden becoming as double as expensive as it was before. So this just a little bit as an explanation what really happened here in the last couple of months or years. Um, uh, as far as price increases go, we're all watching the news. We're all knowing what's happening out there. Um, what I can tell you, uh, contrary to other industries, um, the price calculation in the record pressing industry is still very much bound to um, to raw material and setup prices. It is not a calculation that uh, happens based on demand. Um, it happens based on costs. Um, it for a moment, I would say, like end of last year, I had the feeling with the super limited capacity in the pressing plants we're going to leave this path and we're going to calculate as other industries like an iphone costing 13 euros in manufacturing but being sold for a thousand euros because the demand is there this is something that is not happening happening in a vinyl manufacturing business and it will not happen because there's going to be more capacity becoming available um also, machines are being uh, manufactured these days to press records. Um, there was a shortage of machines as well because uh, they're using uh, digital or they're using circuits that are, weren't available because of the global crisis. Now they're being delivered again. And it pretty much looks like that the uh, available capacity globally in the pressing plants is about to, I would say, even double this year, um, while the demand for records during, due to the price increases will probably go down, and we will see in what effects this will end. Probably records will become even cheaper again. I'm not predicting this, don't get me wrong, but um, if you would have asked me like six weeks ago, I would have said no chance at all of prices going down again. Now I'm not too sure. So from Louis, and a solid international and rescue economic lesson as well. This warms my heart. Awesome. So um, the next uh, thing I've got, I got an, an email coming up with a question just uh, this morning is that the stones box set by most people came in damaged, scuffed corners, uh, scratched records. Um, what could record companies or delivery people do 
to uh, improve the safety of the boxes because the return rate must be quite high, which is not which is an impact on a profit. So there should be an interest to pack the stuff as best as they can. Um, bottom line is um, not only limited to the Rolling Stones debacle, but to other things as well. Bottom line is um, if you look at the international transport business, if you just look at the courier that brings your records to your doorstep, watch them from behind the curtains, and then tell me how would you protect the record to withstand this? It is impossible. Like you can't pack up records so they can withstand every possible damage being done on transport. This is a bitter pill for us to swallow, but it's unfortunately the truth. What you can do is like you can try to minimize the risk of damages. And you need to start at the very early stage of the supply chain. Um, if you create a super expensive box set, um, the box set itself needs to be sturdy enough. And this is what I've envisioned a lot of times myself with demands from clients that I worked for or where we were asked to do some things. There is people who want to use just like a standard box set and put like 10 or 15 records in it and the, the cardstock of the box set is just 1.5 millimeters thick because that's the most affordable one and you just know if i throw 15 records in there and then it rattles in some delivery truck it's going to break and then you go back to your client and tell them look you should at least take that a box in box construction with like two or three millimeters thickness and then they ask you, what does it cost? And you give them a price and they go, no, no, I can't afford this. So then I would need to sell this for whatever 200 euros on the market. And then you try to find a compromise, but you always increase the risk of damage when you do such things. The other thing is what we are lacking is a fundamental understanding on how to treat records by people who are not collecting records or not using records in their daily life and let's make no mistake we're 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 dying breed somehow i mean there is a lot of new people coming in but how many of us are, are out there nowadays we're we're the super nerds we we love records i mean still after i uh, since 2013 we have a constant growth in the vinyl business massively and to all of us it appears like uh, we are the super business but we are not i mean even in the last since 10 years of vinyl growth resurgence and media covering it everywhere vinyl is back i can walk down the main road in, in the village i live and tell people i make records and they go like yeah they're still existing are you sure um so it is it is we're just a tiny bit part of the society while and that was a lot different in the 70s or 80s people working at record pressing plants back then people working in supermarkets people working in the manufacturing or in, in, in the assembly department of the manufacturers people working at delivery uh, companies post ups fedex whatever they were called each and every one back then had a record player at home and was buying records so if they would get a record box loaded in their delivery van they knew exactly what it is and it had a sticker on it it said records inside handle with care and they go like okay i got like i got some of of them at home now the chances of someone transporting your records knowing what they are 
are pretty pretty low. There is if you if you just take everyone into consideration that loads something off a truck into a truck with 99% you can be sure that these are people who have never seen a record before and have never used it and have not the same connection to it as we have. Um, and this is something that we would love to improve. But here comes the other thing. All these big delivery companies, DHL, FedEx, UPS, how they are called, Daxa, Schenker, Hellman, all the big hauliers out there, for them, the international record business and transportation business is a tiny little part in the promille. We are nothing compared to Amazon or Apple or all these big corporations transporting their stuff. We can't even go up to DHL and say like, look, when you send like two or three trucks each day in our manufacturing plant, we just want you to walk the extra mile and protect our records. And then they go like, yeah, we send three trucks to you, but we send 500 to the next one. It's just like, you're, we, we don't make money with your deliveries. How should we establish a system to treat them better? Um, we have done a few uh, attempts to find people dedicated into transporting um, records, but it's not as easy as it sounds. So also you have the problem that these delivery people like DHL or UPS, they have to transport a certain amount of packages each hour. So sometimes yeah. there's just no way to like, oh, this is a record. I have 10 minutes to be careful. Sometimes they are trying to squeeze it in your post box or they're throwing it somewhere or you know, whatever that happens, you know. So Yeah, well, the simple the simple fact that they that they drive to a pressing plant and then there is there is a traffic jam on the way and they try to reroute and go through a village that has cobblestones. That in that is enough. That you can't predict this. It happens all the time. They need to get off the motorway and drive like whatever two kilometers over cobblestones and have like five hundred records in the back there. Probably that Rolling Stones box set where just a tiny little bit of rattle inside the box is resulting in seam splits. Simple mm -hmm. as that. You can't predict it. It is bad luck. It sucks. I hate it too. It makes me angry, but it's, I can't. I can't help it. <laughs> All right. What is your opinion? Because that's now a, a, a bigger topic in the vinyl community. What's your opinion on record cleaning? Do you ah, I, I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, ta I'm taking a, a goose hairbrush and that's it. I know a lot of people doing it. I have a record cleaning machine, um, like a standard... Uh, uh, the one that turns, what is it, Gnosti or whatever, um, where yeah. you put some fluid in. Um, I bought it years ago. Here's the reason why. A um, couple of years ago, it was like, and this might be very hurtful for people, so if you can't handle it, like just switch off for a moment. A couple of years ago in 2010, I flooded my basement. Um, there was like 40 centimeters high water, and there was like a thousand records were damaged and had, um, and we dried all the covers for some it didn't work, for some it worked, um, but the records had all like kind of like a gray shimmer on it from um, that came from the walls. And this was the moment when I bought my first record cleaning machine. It worked quite well. They were still like crackly as fuck, but I still listen to them. Um, I fully understand why people clean their record. And I think it makes a lot of sense if you are one of these persons or one of these people who really enjoy a record specifically when it sounds super clean my personal take on it is 
a brush is enough. And when there is crackle or a little bit dust on it, um, for me, my records are not the holy grail in terms uh, as an object. I buy records because of the music embedded therein, and I like to listen to the music. So that's my personal take. Yeah, Jason is right. Sorry. I just clean my record. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. For some people, uh, you know, there are record cleaning machines who cost up to, I think, 10,000 uh, euros, ultrasonic cleaning machines, and for some it's a real religion. So um, I myself have a degritter, which isn't so cheap, but um, having uh, flea mark records, which are dirty as hell, and I have um, a very expensive needle on my turntable, and um, mm. that really makes a difference in uh yeah saving the needle for uh, you know i can I, I can enjoy my needle more longer and i'm not addicted to drugs and just saying i'm for the record turntable don't get me wrong yeah of course i mean this is something that i haven't mentioned you're perfectly right um if you have like a very expensive cartridge and you're investing a lot in a needle uh then just a little the tiniest dust particle is uh, decreasing the lifespan of your needle and then it makes a hell lot of sense. And it is also to each one his own. If someone wants to spend 10,000 euros on a cleaning machine and he's happy with it, do it. Fine. Collecting U-boats. Uh, what's, what's the English word for U-boat? The English word for U-boat? Yeah. Submarine. The submarine. Yeah, sure. So collecting submarines. Yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow something. Yeah, you got me. Um, so Hanson Hanson Sanchez said, sadly the brush doesn't clean the groove. Um I disagree. Um if you use these, um I'm not a big fan of these standard carbon fiber brushes. Um they go into the groove but they also can damage the groove because sometimes the carbon is quite hard but i'm using a, a, a goose brush uh, from a german small independent supplier they're not that expensive they're like 15 euros um, a company called radeka and um, i actually invested in a little bit, I wouldn't call it research. I got a microscope. So I cleaned the record, went with the microscope in the groove and found out, yeah, it cleans it. There are still some particles left. I agree. But it cleans the groove. It reaches into the groove, does it? Okay. So, and Hanson Sanchez asked me, and Nadine, what, uh, what cartridge do you use? I use the VM740ML Audio Technica on my Rivox B. 790 from 1977. So, uh, all right. Uh, you should spell uh, also Hanson Sanchez. I'm sorry, I hope I spelled it correct. Please spell the name of the manufacturer. Could you repeat the manufacturer of your brush, which everybody's going to buy now? Redecker. Let me just um, let me see if I can I can I can Google this really quick. Um, I don't know if it's a, if it was with a CK or it was just a K. All right, while you do this, I hope you're multitasking. Small yeah. Oh my boy, you have a loud keyboard. Uh, does Andreas only buy and listen to new records? Um, if I only buy and listen to new records, no. Yes. All right. 
No. I have no. I, I, I buy I buy records on flea markets and um, um, I would I would even say nowadays I listen to used records only because when I get a new record is it is being used within a couple of days. I just get it, play it. That's what I do. <laughs> All right. It, it, the company, by the way, is called Redeka. R E D E C K E R. So hope that that helped. Do you have a holy grail record? One which means it doesn't need to have a certain value. It means a lot to you. Uh, it it is. It really it really depends um, on my on my mood. I must say there is there is records uh, that I rate pretty high and I wouldn't want to get rid of it. Um, uh, records that I um, that I bought on special occasions or connected with certain times in my life. But to name one a single one, it would probably um, it would probably need to be ten different records. And when I have written them down, I have another forty or fifty coming up. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, there is, a, but to mention a few, as I said, like I'm a big Led Zeppelin fan, so all the Led Zeppelin records, I got them in several pressings from different eras, and I love them to bits. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big Dead Moon fan, I love all the Dead Moon records, basically because they're so, yeah, they're so basic. They're all mono, uh, they're not so super well mastered, but they breathe such an amount of energy that I just love them. Yeah, okay. and the records that I've been working, my bloody Valentine, what I earlier mentioned, and whenever I take this record in my hand or these records in my hand, I know what went into it, so they have a special place in my heart. All right, so I marked two questions, which uh, I don't want to uh, leave you without, Andreas. Andreas, from your experience, are some pressing plants caring more about dust during record proce pressing process? Um, yes, <laughs> there is, um, uh, it, it, it really, uh, like with every other business as well, if you go to your local bakery store or you go to your local butcher or whatever you go to, you will always find people um, that care a bit more about the cleanliness of their facilities and other stone. It certainly doesn't mean that the records leaving those who are don't care as much during pressing that their records leaving the plants are inferior in quality because they might invest a little bit more effort on a different part of their um, of their of their manufacturing ways. On the, they're using probably anti-static conveyor belts at some point or something. So you always need to see um, you need to you need to see the the, uh, the whole thing about it. But yes, I agree. That there is pressing manufacturers out there who do care a bit more about quality than others do, and that should be that should be understandable to everyone. What I don't agree, and this I know this discussion um, that uh, a lot of discussion is going on about suppliers. Some of them are making bad records, and other are, are making good records. This is not the truth. They're all capable of doing the same quality of records. The only thing that separates manufacturers from each other is the quality control not the pressing itself all right thanks for that and the question from lewis is andreas have you heard about the green vinyl method from green vinyl records 
you are referring to uh, the injection molded records coming from the Netherlands. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about a green vinyl compound? Because the, that, that term is used on both sides of it. So, Louis, let us know in the comments what you meant with that question. I can, I can refer on both. There, a green vinyl is being used for a, a compound or actually um, is being used widely by a supplier from the Netherlands named Deep Grooves. They, um, they came up with the, with the idea of green vinyl and it is not something that is strictly limited to the record itself. It just is a concept of a manufacturer being as eco-friendly and sustainable as possible, as at all possible. This company is using green gas to power their machines, which only comes from renewable sources. Um, they're using uh, electricity that is coming from renewable sources. They're using especially certified paper for their slaves. It needs to be FSC certified. Um, basically, they're combining efforts that each and every pressing plant on this planet can get their hands on are selling it as well, but they're combining the best in class, like everything together. Um, there is currently two ideas on the market coming up with a more eco-friendly vinyl compound. Um, which is like two levels um, uh, of, of, of manufacturing. Um, there is a compound out there which is basically still PVC, uh, polyvinyl chloride, but the ethylene uh, embedded in the, in the material is not coming from natural oil. It's coming from uh, renewable sources, mostly cornstarch. So um, the, the, the ethylene manufacturing part is not natural oil connected which makes it not ultimately a more sustainable compound when it comes to recycling, but the creation of the material is more sustainable. That is one concept. The other concept is finding a material that it is, that is not PVC anymore. The whole creation and the whole manufacturing of this compound is fully from renewable or ecological sources. Um, there is a lot of research going on, um, and I should say, watch your regular spaces. This is uh, probably hitting the market at some point this year. Um, there is companies um, experimenting with it. One is a company called Evolution from uh, Evolution Vinyl from the UK. They're pretty advanced in it. Um, a bit of a problem that we have here, and I'm one that is that likes to be transparent and honest with such things, the manufacturing of uh, an basically PVC or non-PVC compound might be very sustainable, but we have no concept of recycling so far when this comes to the market. Um, this is what people sometimes forget. PVC is not the most environmentally friendly plastic out there, but it is the plastic um, that has, no. or let me put it another way, no other plastic uh, on the planet has better researched in terms of recycling because it is existing since the late 30s. And um, the recycling cycles and the way of plastic recycling is so far advanced for PVC uh, compared to any other plastics that you always have to take this into consideration. So all I'm saying is I'm all up for some 
more sustainable plastic and I'm counting the days until someone comes up in the market but you always have to see all aspects from it and if someone comes up it's like I got the super sustainable recycled vinyl um, don't let it let them fool you just ask questions from where it is manufactured up to where it is recycled and where exactly is it sustainable wow that sounds very interesting um, Richard is asking Lloyd. Ooh. Um, what celluloid are you referring to? Like nitrocelluloid or acetylcelluloid? If you're referring to nitrocelluloid, I don't want to store this at home and then have it in, going up in flames all the time. Um, when you just have a bit of static in your room and you light up a candle and then all of a sudden it does swoosh and it, everything exploits, uh, explodes. Um, the uh, celluloid has been widely used in the um, in the in the last years of the 1800s in tests for records. Um, a lot of things people don't know uh, in the international and in, in, in the record business has analogies to the filmmaking industry. Um, also, the reason why a record is exactly 12 inch and 33 RPM refers directly back to the film industry. Um, and back in the day when um, Emil Berliner and other key figures of the, uh, of the vinyl inventions were looking for a material, um, they did a lot of tests with celluloid um, and uh, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't so fruitful what came out of it. Back then they, they were expe experimenting with natural rubber as well as glass and then later with shellac and then vinyl and there is a reason why vinyl um, survived. We are almost hitting one and a half hours. I would say if you have some questions, we are filling up one and a half hour. Uh, and so if you have questions, keep them posting. Like the one from Jose who is asking Andreas, what's your opinion on new albums? That could be like uh, yeah. is every Yeah, please, more albums every day. Like artists out there record, put record out, records out. I need new music. Yes, please give me new albums. I have a question. What's um, your opinion about um, this whole AAA production circle on a record and instead of uh, doing the digital thing? So we have two more minutes for a massive rant on this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, we all need to understand, and I'm not giving you the full story here, you can easily Google this. AAA, ADD, DDD, this triple... Uh, mentioning has absolutely no zero business in record manufacturing. It was not designed for record manufacturing. The AAA, ADD, or A AAD um, shortage was designed specifically for CDs. And it gives an insight on how the intermediate files or the intermediate results of the different processes were stored, not even how they were created. This means if you have an analog recording and it was stored on an analog tape, that's the first A. At the mixing stage, it could have been analog, it could have been an analog mixing process, but stored on a hard disk. Then you have your first D. And this is the only thing where it refers to. It has no business on, on, on albums. There's a lot of people like putting it on albums, but it, it's just a joke. It's just like it the AAA doesn't um, indicate any kind of like processing of a record. 
Um, I agree that we might need to come to a point or we might think about a point how a record has been made. On the other hand, why do we need to have this? Um, in, in the end, you buy a record, you like the sound, done deal. And we, get to, we would get to a point where this is going to be really complex and really complicated because I'd say 99.9% .9 of all records being released nowadays, even, probably even more, have at least one digital step in between because that's state of the art. That's what everyone does. There is hardly any fully analog new release out there. There is a few that are being cut from tape, but you can't you, you don't even know if the tape that has been recorded hasn't been using a digital synthesizer in the sound creation somehow. So is it still analog or is it not? Do I have some kind of like noises in the background of a record where some artist thought like, oh, it's a good idea to have whatever a knock knock on the door and I got a digital synthesizer and I have a knock knock on the door now on the on the record, but everything else is analog. So is it digital then or is it not? Um, what's the question? Is there a di digital mixing process, but a storage still on a tape? Is it analog? Or do I do a fully analog mastering and a fully analog mixing, but send the fully mastered, fully analog master record on a hard disk or on a WeTransfer file to the pressing plant? Is it a digital step or is it not? Of course it is. I mean, there is a file, but it the whole way how you mix master and send off a record to the pressing plant. Um, if there is a digital step in between, doesn't give you any indication how it really sounds. So that is the question if we need this information. All right. Thanks for that. I could go very much into that <laughs> because, uh, but we don't open that up now. So uh, I think one uh, final question, um, I think that's a very good one also, is Hanson Sanchez once again, with what's the preferred RPM? Is it 33 versus 45 for a quality record? Why is US 33 RPM dominant? Um, very short answer if someone is interested in 45 rpm full stop it's it's the best this is like uh, it is it, it is logical if you would just take the groove of a record and take it out so this is not going to be a short answer now um if you take it out and you just roll it up and have one line of it with 45 rpm the needle goes over it much faster so in the same amount of time it reads out much more information, which allows the information to be much more detailed. Result is 45 RPMs, uh, RPM allows for much higher dynamics, for less compression, and gives a better quality. The reason why 33 RPM is dominant um, dates back to history. I mentioned this quite a, a, a bit shorter, a bit, a bit earlier. Um, the in the late 30s of the last century, um, people, or let me start somewhere else. Um, in, in the 30s, when World War II, or in between the two world wars and World War II started, um, theaters, film theaters, had a big issue. Um, back in the day, films were silent. There was no tone on the film. So 
Um, it was the standard that a film was played in a theater, in a movie theater, and then there was an orchestra sitting there and playing. Um, same was at radio stations. All radio stations had a had a, 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 an orchestra playing. And then World War II started, and all these people playing in these orchestras had to go to war. And the film theaters, movie theaters, and the radio stations didn't have any people anymore that were playing music. So they needed to find out what they want to do. They needed to find a solution. And this is when the record got really big. This is how the record came into business. Um, there was this invention of Emil Berliner. People were talking about there's these records. Can't we just combine this with the film industry? And then I did some tests and needed to agree on a standard. Um, a film roll back in the day was 200 yards long. It could host 21 minutes of music. And that was the goal. They wanted something that could host 21 minutes of music. So the film, uh, the movie th theater can change the film roll at the same time when they change the music. And the 33 RPM and the 12 inch record is a compromise between size, so you can store it easily, recordable quality, and uh, overall concept of it. Uh, there was experiments with like 14 and 15 inch records who could play faster. There were smaller records. Um, anyway, the standard 33 RPM 12 uh, inch was established because of that reason, um, to have a good compromise of playing quality, storage, and 20 minutes of one, on one side. Um, right after World War II, it became the standard um, in the in the record manufacturing industry, mainly forced and patented by uh, the company Columbia, who put it on the market. Um, now Columbia was asking for a license fee, and one of the companies uh, going back to Emil Berliner's inventions uh, in the century before was the company RCA Victor. They didn't want to pay that fee. Uh, to manufacture records based on that standard. So they came up with a different concept, and that was the 7-inch 45 RPM. The goal for the 7-inch record and 45 RPM was dating back to the old Edison uh, idea, um, rolling yeah, rolling spindle, where the idea was to put one, or to, to host one children's song on one roll, and that was five minutes. And they went back to this original idea and said, like, we want a device that is easy to handle, cheap to make, cheap to manufacture, that can host one song. And this is how the 45 uh, RPM, the 7-inch record, got invented. Um, we could also talk about the big middle hole, but that we couldn't do this on another day. So, um, And then this got established in the mid-50s. And for two years, both companies went to literally a war on their trademarks. It went down in music history as the war of the speeds. You can Google it. There is the, the whole story is behind it. Until by the end of the 50s, they agreed to waive the license fee for each other. And since then, both formats have become the industry standard and remain it till now. And everything that is connected with the vinyl business, the size of the machine, the molds that are being used for the stampers to attach, uh, all the mastering software as well as the mastering hardware, everything is designed for 33 RPM 12-inch records or 45 RPM 7-inch records. And with our business so tiny in comparison to other businesses, there is no intention to change that. Um, you don't want to go this route.
All right. So first of all, we honor the donor. Uh, thanks, uh, Timo, for uh, the donation. So I, I need to invite uh, Andreas to a beer. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> and we also uh, got some requests for a part two. So you're open to send in questions and I will uh, ask Andreas if he would like to uh, do this again and uh, not to set him under pressure right now in front of all of you. And uh, uh, But I'm sure he will. Uh, so send in all the questions uh, you have. Um, if you haven't, don't have any more questions, we will wrap it up up here. And like I said, send in questions like you did uh, the last time, and uh, then we'll be setting up a next appointment. And um, thanks all of you who were watching. Uh, we had a we had a great time. Thanks, especially Andreas. Um, you made so many clear uh, so many things clear for me tonight. I was uh, where I was wondering, and yeah, there were absolutely astonishing answers from you so thanks everybody thanks andreas and um yeah have a you're have welcome a good i enjoyed it very much a All little right. bit of advertising and promotion guys um end of end of september early october harlem vinyl festival in harlem the netherlands um i'm singing high praises of this festival everyone who's into vinyl should show up and that's it okay where do i find that can i google this uh, uh, there is a website up already, Harlem Vinyl Festival, Harlem with double A. Dot .nl, dot .de, dot... Um, I think it's dot .nl, dot .nl, and it's a festival dedicated to everything vinyl. There's going to be music, all the clubs will be involved, and there is like a conference where uh, pressing plants will appear and can answer questions. Um, the pressing plant record industry is based in Harlem, so they will be involved. There is going to be a, a record fair organized by the people who do Record Planet. Uh, record Planet. Um, then there is magazines involved, and it's going to be like a three days hangout for everyone that loves vinyl and all aspects of it. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, I'll put um, the link for this in the comments below once the stream is done. Also, cool. uh, thank you for the for the donation, Hanso Sanchez. I, I practice the name. I will practice the name. And uh, and once again, a big, big thank you, Andreas. Please hold on for a second. Otherwise, I'm wishing you guys a great weekend. Thanks for watching. Take care. Bye. you enjoyed our conversation and you will also enjoy the upcoming episodes from Vinyl Community Podcasts. If you might be interested in the second part, please send in any further questions to nadine at soldisco.de. Thanks for hearing and we are looking forward to hear from you on our next episodes. Goodbye. <laughs>